the title of the sermon this morning is A Flexible Container. And we all have a container. And this container that we have is made up of our beliefs, our doubts, our feelings, and our practices, the way that we live our life. So our beliefs, what we hold fast to in our mind and our heart, our doubts, the things we're unsure of, our feelings, sadness, joy, loneliness, and our practices. How do we actually live in the mix of all of those things? And it's really important to have the right container to hold the right substance. So uh, if you put hot coffee in a thin, cheap, like uh, Young Avenue Deli plastic cup, it's not gonna work out, right? And you're gonna burn yourself. Or you're hopefully not going to try to eat soup off of a plate, another bad idea. So it's really important to have the right container to hold the right things. And so the question that we're going to be dealing with this morning that I think this parable is talking about is, is what's the type of container that is able to hold the teachings of Jesus and therefore the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven among us? What does that container look like? So uh, to rephrase the question again, and it's on the screen here. Here's our main question for the thrust of our sermon this morning. How can belief and doubt, feelings and practice work together to make a flexible container for the kingdom of heaven? That's our, that's our question for the morning. So we look at this parable. It's a weird parable. Uh, it's not one that you're like, oh yeah, I instantly get what Jesus is talking about. But if we spend a couple of minutes building a little bit of context around it, I think it'll come to life for us pretty quickly and give us some really interesting things to consider. So in verse 36, Jesus starts this parable. And the reason why he tells this parable is because there's an event taking place uh, before this. So if we, we back up, we're going we're gonna to crisscross and move all around Luke chapter 5 today, so you probably want to keep that open and in front of you, because I'm going to be calling you back to it uh, throughout our few minutes here together. So Jesus in this chapter is calling his disciples. He's, he's come through the temptations in the desert, and now he is setting out to call specific people to follow after him, to see his specific way of teaching about God in the religion of Judaism. And they're going to follow him. They're going to they're adopt his practices, his ways of thinking, his ways of doing things. And so one of the disciples that Jesus selects is this tax collector named Levi. And tax collectors were not well-liked people in the Jewish culture of this time. It's really different from today. I don't know if you can imagine it, but uh, tax collectors weren't popular back then. That was a joke, but yeah, didn't work. So, because tax collectors are never popular, right? So, um, this guy Levi, he throws this huge party and the disciples that Jesus has already selected, the fishermen and these other guys, they're all at this big party. And this is a jumping party. This is like, you got music playing, you got probably like people doing tricks and stuff like that, because they didn't, you know, they didn't have DJs or anything. So they have maybe somebody juggling or something, I don't know. And it's loud, and all the disciples are there, and there's stuff in their faces eating, just like, you know, 
elbow deep in some lamb, you know, just killing it. Some rosemary probably on the side, lots of extra rosemary that goes good with lamb. And, uh, and the Pharisees, these guys, the Pharisees, who's, who were also teachers of Judaism and how to follow God, were kind of like watching all this. They're kind of like peeking their heads in the window. They're sort of like halfway in the room, and they're trying to figure out what is going on here? Why, why are these guys doing this? Why are they celebrating and partying like this? That's not the way that we would teach our disciples to act and behave. And also John the Baptist's disciples there. John the Baptist, really important guy who, would, who uh, was the forerunner of Christ. And he, and he came and he said, you know, I'm preparing the way of the Lord. And he called people to repentance and back, baptism. And some of his disciples were there checking out the scene as well. And they're like, what is this Jesus guy about? Like, he seems really holy, and he seems like he can do and say and teach these amazing things, but he's sitting with, like, these drunkards and tax collectors and, like, partying. And so they ask the disciples, look at me, look with me at uh, verse 30. It says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So the disciples are sitting there, their second plate of mashed potatoes, and all of a sudden these guys ask them, like, hmm? and they stare silently, looking at the Pharisees, and Jesus is like, I'll answer this. This is what he says. Jesus answered them, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call. But those who are sick, I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. That's what he says before this parable comes out. And so the Pharisees are saying, look, this is, this is how you do it, right, Jesus? Like you're supposed to fast a couple times a day. You're supposed to offer prayers in the synagogue. This is what it means to be a disciple in the way, in Judaism. This is what God requires of anyone who wants to follow after a teacher of the law. So why is it that you guys, you disciples, aren't doing that, and why, Jesus, are you leading them in that way? It, it doesn't make sense to us. That's not a holy life. You don't hang out with those people and intermix with all that craziness going on, those sinners, those tax collectors, those drunkards. And so then Jesus tells this parable. So let's look at this parable again and see what it means. What is Jesus talking about here? He says, back in verse 36, he says that no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So you got this garment, brand new, and you got an old one over here. The new garment is Jesus' teachings. The old garment is the Pharisees' teachings, how you follow Jesus, I mean, how you follow God. And so he's saying you can't take a piece of the new teachings and just kind of like attach it or sprinkle it on to this old way of doing things, this, this other way of relating to God, this overly religious way that's focused on this sort of internal 
and, and not external way of relating to the world around you that's really focused on your personal purity and holiness. It won't work. If you just try to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus's way and his teachings on top, you look stupid because the old garment doesn't match. It's like one of those funky polka dot patches like on the middle of your skinny jeans. It's just not going to look good, right? And then on top of it, you make Jesus's way look ridiculous too because you got this brand new fly shirt and there's a big hole in it. It's not going to work, man. And he says, okay, and that's not enough. Let me tell you it a different way. So it, let, let's talk about wine since we're all here drinking. Well, you guys aren't, but we are. We're, we're, we're enjoying ourselves. And so let's talk about what's right in front of us, wine. And he says this like, well, you know, obviously you wouldn't do this. Like this is not something that you would do. You would not take new wine and put it in old wineskins because the, the wine is going to burst the wineskin. So real quick, I'm not going to tell you a bunch of information about what I, what I read past couple weeks about the fermentation of wine. That'd be the, the quickest way to make somebody fall asleep right now, uh, myself included. But uh, goat skins, right? They used goat skins. And when you put new wine into the goat skins, the new wine is really active. It's like gassy. You know like when you just eat too much salty, spicy food? and what's going on in your stomach, that's what new wine is like in the goat skins. And so it's pushing out and it's moving around in all the wrong ways, right? And the goat skin forms and expands to fit what's going on inside there. But if you have old wine skins, then your wine skins have already done that. They've already expanded. It's like when you get a pair of skinny jeans, right? And you, uh, this is my second skinny jeans joke, right? So, or illustration, I don't know why, I just feel, feel like it's relevant for some reason. But uh, so you get, your, you get your skinny jeans and you, and you put them on and they're too tight, too tight. But you know they're gonna stretch out, right? But then you give them to your friend and they're too tight for your friend and your friends think, well they'll stretch out, but they don't. And so the first time your friend bends over, it rips. That's what Jesus is talking about right here. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about you got this wine and it's new, but it's busting up in this old, already stretched out container. And so what happens to the container? It can't hold it, it blows up, boom. So you always wanna put the new wine in the new skins. So there's reason and room to expand. So I offer to you today that Jesus is saying here that the wine is his teachings about the kingdom of heaven and what that looks like. That's what the new wine is. It's not this um, inward purity sort of way that the Pharisees developed. And they developed it for some good reasons, but they missed the forest for the trees. And so he's saying it's not that, it's this new dynamic sort of teaching this way. It's going to make you feel all gassy and uncomfortable, and it's going to need something to push up and move against, that the container has to be flexible, that your beliefs, that's your practices, that's your feelings, and that your doubts have to be flexible in order to contain this kingdom of heaven teaching that I have to offer. So he's saying here, hey, Pharisees, you guys, you've got it all figured out. You've already formed your goat skins. You've already stretched out your skinny jeans. 
And so when you look at what I'm doing and how I am leading people into a relationship with God in all of these ways, that you can't stretch, you can't flex, because you're so convinced and so interested in what you already think you know. So then, who's, who's the example that we can look at? So if you gotta be this flexible person that, that, that's able to flex with their, their beliefs and their doubts and, and, and do all this kind of work and, and be like a jazz musician, just like playing uh, with, with a band and, and just improvising and responding and all that kind of stuff. That sounds like you got to be kind of like a really skilled person, like an incredibly adapt thinker, that you have to be well studied, that maybe we have to go all the way to the mountains of Tibet to find somebody who would be able to be a disciple of Jesus, or, or maybe we need to go to the ivory towers of our institutions in the United States to find somebody who would be able to have this kind of flexible container to receive the teachings of Jesus. But if you, but if you thought that, you would be wrong, because where Jesus goes and he looks, the first place he looks for this person who has all this amazing ability to flow and react to his teachings of the kingdom of heaven is a little lake, a little fisherman's lake. And we're going to go all the way back 2,000 years and just a page over into the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 5 to find this lake. So join me in Luke chapter 5 verse 1, same chapter we've been. Well, we will see an example of this sort of flexible container as it relates to belief and doubt and obedience. So kind of our first little point to, to hang our hat on in this story here is this idea of doubting obedience. Doubting obedience. That's going to kind of help us flow through this passage right here. So Luke chapter 5. Verse 1, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Okay, so this is Jesus. He's, he's up early in the morning. He's teaching. And it's just like you guys, like right at the crack of dawn, people are up in a huge crowd ready to hear the word of God. It's just like us, right? No coffee, no nothing. They're just there, man. And, and he saw these two boats, verse 2, by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So just real quick, the fishermen, they fish at night, uh, and they sleep during the day. So they just did the night shift. They just did the night shift at FedEx, an eight-hour shift, and they're getting home, about to go to sleep. And Jesus is followed by a crowd of people and stands on their doorstep, right? And starts preaching. And you're like, well, I guess I can't go to bed. Jesus is using my doorstep. He's using like my front door to do all this teaching. And there's like 300 people around him. And then Jesus says, okay, I'm a little too crowded. So then he steps a little bit further. He like steps into your house. So the, so the, the uh, connection here is he steps into the boat of these tired fishermen who've been working all night and they're ready to go to bed. And they're, they're washing their nets, which means they're right at the end. Their nets had to be washed every time because the water would make it deteriorate. They didn't have nylon nets yet for either fishing or skinny jeans. Neither thing did they have it for yet. 
right? Um, yeah, Sheree said something to me the other day about my, my jeans not being skinny enough, so I guess I'm processing that <laughs> right now. Yeah, and I made sure not to wear my skinniest ones this morning, but Sheree's not here, so maybe she'll listen to it on the podcast. She's, she's in Texas. All right. So, so he sat, then he sits down in the boat, and he starts teaching the people. The end of verse 3. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So he finishes teaching, and then he tells Peter, all right, put your nets back in. And, and Simon, so his name was Simon before it became Peter, he says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So, this is, this, this is what's going on with Peter right now. Simon, his name's Simon still. He's, he's, he knows Jesus is this really important guy. He calls him master even. He's, he's kind of been following him already, kind of knows what Jesus is about, knows he's doing miraculous things and teaching like no one has ever done before. But you know who doesn't know as much about fishing as Peter? Just about anybody else around there, especially that Jesus was a carpenter, man. He doesn't know about fishing. He doesn't know what's going on. And so when this guy who's a, who's a religious leader and a carpenter says to a guy, guy knows one thing, he knows fish, and he knows how to catch fish, and he knows when you can't catch fish, and, and Jesus says to him, Peter, let your nets back down. And Peter's like, man, I've been, we've been cleaning these nets. They're heavy, they're big, we've been cleaning these nets, we want to go to bed, but at your bidding, master, we will do it. We will put down these nets one more time, even though you're crazy, and it's not going to work out, and it's just not going to be a good deal for me. But I trust you, Jesus, enough to do something you tell me to do, even though I doubt that what you told me to do is going to do anything that works for me. All right? That sounds like a complicated sentence, but it is this idea here of doubting and obedience together. Uh, the way that uh, the, the, the philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich said, I know you're going to correct me on that pronunciation later, Robin, and it's on the screen, is doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, but an element of faith. See, many of us in the Bible Belt have always been told that if you have faith, that means there is no room for doubt in your mind, in your heart, that you have to push those out and pretend like they aren't there, and that then you have to make decisions based on sort of this lopsided container, that instead of letting belief and doubt work together, that you have to sort of push and press and, and get rid of your doubt in order to believe. But that's not what we see here that Peter is doing. Peter, he believes in Jesus. He believes that Jesus is somebody special. Maybe even he already has the inkling in his heart that Jesus might even be the Messiah the one they've been waiting for. But he does not believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about when he's talking about going fishing. 
he doubts him. He says, hey man, we've already been doing this, it's not working, and yet he does it anyway. Seems like such a simple thing but there might not be somebody in those ivory towers. There might not be somebody else on that Tibetan mountain that would have that kind of belief and doubt working together. Thank God that Peter did to show it to us. He was certain in his uncertainty. That's what Peter was. He was certain in his uncertainty. You ever heard somebody say, you ever heard a preacher say, just be sure, I heard this on an Easter Sunday one time, just be sure that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know. (laughs) But here we see Jesus choosing a disciple that is sure that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. There's only one thing he knows is that Jesus Even though he might tell me to do some craziest stuff, he's worth listening to. What about the Pharisees? What about when when Jesus asks something of these Pharisees who, who are so sure of what they know about God and how to follow him and what he commands of their lives and, and what types of rules and, and laws they are to follow? What do they do? They just dig in their heels when Jesus shows them something different, something that they don't expect, something that doesn't fit into their container that has become calcified and has become recalcitrant, all meaning just stiff, not flexible anymore, the already stretched out skinny jeans, they can't do anything with it. They don't have the container to hold it because they know that they know that they know. When in the part of the passage that we read earlier, when we saw the Pharisees asking and the scribes asking the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responded in verse 31, he said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, the Pharisees, they didn't need Jesus. They had already worked out, they already had it all fleshed out, they already had their container formed so that they already knew how to be righteous. They already knew if they sinned, they had their little, they had their rituals, they had their ceremonies, they had their own little things that they could do within themselves or their traditions that they could do outside of themselves that took care of the righteousness for them. They really didn't need Jesus. They certainly didn't need a Jesus who would mess with those things, who would say, what you thought was essential is not essential. What you thought was a requirement of God isn't. It might even be the opposite of what you think. So it requires some flexibility to be able to follow Jesus. And this is a very important message for those of us who have grown up in the South, who have been told what the main things were since we, before we could speak. And we knew that Jesus died on the cross for our sins before we knew what any of those words even actually meant. 
that it requires some flexibility. It requires somebody who's willing to say, I'm certainly uncertain. If you want to end up following Jesus instead of the things that maybe you're so certain about about what God wants. Think about what the Pharisees asked. They asked, why aren't your disciples fasting and praying? Are those good things? Yeah, those are great things. I hope that you all partake in those spiritual disciplines as often as you can. Um, so, so here's the deal. The Pharisees were convinced that God had taken his hand off of them and the people of Israel because that they didn't obey the law. And, and that's true. That's what Jeremiah the prophet tells us. He foretells that what's going to happen to the, to the kingdom of Judah, part of the kingdom of Israel, is that Babylon's going to conquer them and take them away into exile as servants and slaves. And so fast forward several hundred years, and they're still in bondage, but now under Rome, they switched oppressors. And they think, if we can just be obedient enough, then God will act. God will change things. But, like I said earlier, they miss the forest for the tree. They became fixated on what they thought could be the main things. They set up laws, they set up requirements to be in Judaism, to be connected to God that weren't even actually in the scriptures. And you see Jesus and his disciples breaking some of these laws and commands. And the intent was wonderful. The intent was to say, if we hold these things, if we hold the line here, and the sin is here, then we keep people safe. If we say, not only are these certain ceremonies and, and, and fasting required on the Day of Atonement, but we should fast twice every week in order to make sure we're extra righteous and extra holy. But what happens when you get focused on your own righteousness, your self-righteousness, is you begin to miss the bigger picture. You begin to miss the context that God was trying to create in that way, the shalom, the weaving together of things that God was attempting to make. So they're focused here on the, on the tree in front of them, this law, and they don't see the forest. Or another way to think about it, think about if obeying the laws and the rules, things like uh, tithing or fasting or praying or, or making sure some, some of us have these, these extra laws in our mind that like we confess our sins every Every night before we go to bed, or if we do something bad, if we get drunk, or we look at pornography, then the next day we do these other things in order to regain our righteous standing with God. We have these little, sometimes very secret rituals that we do in order to stay focused on our personal righteousness to make sure that we are the ones who are okay with God. But what happens when it gets so myopic is it's like if you had a beautiful view out, out your window which I like our view out of our front window, babe. I like it. I, I like the, the big window, and we talk about it. And it's just a street, you know? It's just in some trees. And we have our kids' fingerprints all over that window. So it's like if you were to only ever see those fingerprints and constantly be wiping it off, which we don't, um, 
and only ever seeing, oh, there's a fingerprint, there's a fingerprint, there's a fingerprint, and you never get to appreciate the view. Jesus is saying you're not flexible enough to follow after me. You're not flexible enough to be my disciple, to walk in this way, to live into this active, gassy, uncomfortable, moving kingdom of heaven that we see in this illustration here. So Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So maybe sometimes we say, you know what, Jesus, I am a sinner, I am sick, but I, I got it. Like, I've, I've got it figured out. Like, I got my routine. I don't want you to interrupt it with something new that's unfamiliar to me, not flexible enough, or something that, you know what? Jesus is telling me to do something that I don't think is going to work for my life. I think I kind of know a little bit more about Jesus than accounting or how I should be honest on my taxes or not honest, or filing this insurance claim after my house caught on fire or I got into a car wreck and I didn't leave a note or whatever it may be in your life going on, where you say, you know what, Jesus, I hear you, I know what you're talking about, but I think I kind of got this one. Inflexible. It brings up doubts, right? It brings up doubts when Jesus tells you to do something that is uncomfortable. So they love the law, but they miss the forest for the trees. When we become so certain we already have it figured out, we miss so much. I want to I show you a, a quick study uh, from this article. Uh, it'll be familiar to you, Jim, because you, you posted it recently on Facebook. It came out, I think, 2016, but it was about this idea called confirmation bias, that something that we believe early on, um, we will disregard any information, uh, a lot of people will disregard almost any information that contradicts it, whether or not we have evidence for it or not. So, so this group of psychologists, they did this study uh, with these, these two groups, and they read this article about this guy named Frank, and Frank was a firefighter. And in the first study, Frank was a great firefighter. That's what they were told. And he got promotions and all this stuff, and he did all these great things with his family. And Frank took a test about being a firefighter. And Frank always chose the safest options, the least risky options. And so those two things went together. Frank's a great firefighter, he's a great father, he's a great everything, and he always chose the safest options on the test. And then they told the participants, this isn't actually true. We made this all up. Frank isn't a great firefighter, and he didn't actually do this. He didn't actually score this test this way where he avoided all risk. And then they asked the participants, if, if this guy Frank was real, do you think he'd be a good firefighter? Or, or that a good firefighter would avoid risk? And they, almost all of them said, yes, a good firefighter would avoid risk. And then they did the same thing with the second group, where they said, this same guy, Frank, he's a lousy firefighter. He gets written up all the time. He's barely hanging on to his job. He's not good to his family. And that this Frank almost always chooses the safest, or almost uh, always chooses the least safest option, the most risky. I think that might be wrong up there. 
And then they asked him, they asked the participants after they said, this isn't real again, like these two sets of information, Frank was not a lousy firefighter and he didn't always choose the risky things on the test. And they said, what do you think a good firefighter would be? And the participant said that a good firefighter would risk a lot and avoid caution because the first thing that they heard was this. God, I did not explain that right. I, was, I knew it was a gamble to try this one. Let me try it one more time, just real simply, all right? Frank, good firefighter, always didn't, uh, did, didn't do anything risky, and then we find out that that's made up, and then they ask the person, would a good firefighter take risks? And everybody said no. Second, Frank was a lousy firefighter, and on his test, he always um, chose to avoid risk. So it is the same. He always cho chose to avoid risk. So it's fake, right? So would a good firefighter avoid risk? No, they wouldn't because the lousy firefighter was the one who avoided risk. So you, it stands that the good firefighter must be the one who, you know. <laughs> I'm going to make a little note in my journal today. <laughs> Never do a psychological comparison study from the pulpit again. Had to try it. So, basically when we are faced with the things, when we are faced with the things that cause us to have both belief and doubt with Jesus in this, in this way that he's showing us, we can either be like Peter or we can be like the Pharisees. Peter says, I'm going to surrender to what you're talking about, Jesus, even though it doesn't make sense, it doesn't fit into my previous paradigms, or we can move like the Pharisees and we can dig in and double down and say, nope, I'm sticking with what I know, this makes me doubt, this makes me uncomfortable, I have all these feelings, I'm afraid, and so I'm going to stick with what I already know, thanks anyway, Jesus. So this brings us to a point where we're looking at something here in this passage where we see further Jesus, or Peter's reaction. How does he get even closer? How does this container start to flex even more? Because now he's opened the gateway. He's opened the path into being able to hear more of what Jesus has to say. He's already opened it up. He's already become more flexible. Where the Pharisees were stymied, they've, they've had to take a step back and become judgmental and criticism and critis, criticizing and becoming fearful. Unfortunately, this idea of this person who's flexible, this, this type of container, or the fearful, judgmental person, if we looked at those two and we asked our country, which one of these do you think about as a Christian? Which one would they pick? They would pick that fearful, judgmental one. There's actually a lot of studies about it that I'm not going to share anything with you about right now. So this second sort of point, the first point was this, this, um, this doubting obedience that Peter exhibited, which opened him up to sinful humility. Sinful humility. Not sinful humanity, but sinful humility. This idea of earning versus surrendering. 
So let me tell you, let me tell you what I'm talking about here. Let's look into this passage right here where we see the same thing going on. We see um, here in verse 6. Verse 5, he said, but at your will I will let down the nets. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and the nets were breaking. So, boom, pay dirt, fish are coming, tons of fish. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." So Peter opens up, and then he sees, he sees here that Jesus is, is who he thought he was. He starts to learn more about Jesus through this, that Jesus is a miracle worker, that he might indeed be the Son of God, that he is for sure divine to cause this miracle to happen. And there's a lot of reasons why this is amazing that this happened. It's not just like a, like a sort of luck casino thing. I mean, the fish in the morning could see the nets. So they basically would have just had to look at the nets and run right into them, which they never did. So Jesus like made the fish run into the nets. Jesus killed fish for you. A whole lot of them. Let that sink in on your way home. <laughs> so Peter surrenders. He says, I can't. I can't follow you. I can't do this. I'm sinful. I'm not like you. We are in a different class. We are in a different league. The Pharisees say, no, I've got my system. I got my ways of dealing with this stuff. Peter surrenders. And Jesus says to him some amazing and simple words. He says, do not be afraid. Look there in the passage and see those words. He says in verse 10, do not be afraid. And the second part of that sentence is, from now on, you will be catching men. There's something really new about this way of thinking, this way of living for humanity. It's still new right now, 2,000 years later, because religion has often been so wrapped up and caught up and contained and calcified into this inflexible container that can only be concerned about how we can make ourselves right with God. And Jesus says two things to Peter that changes the game. Peter says, I'm sinful, depart from me, and Jesus says, do not be afraid and let's go to work. He says, you've spent too much time being told that your sin is the point. That, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die for your sins, but I'm also going to raise you to a new life. It's not for you to just stay here in this moment of perpetually using everything I've taught you, all of the words in this Bible, to keep just trying on your own to make yourself righteous. You got a job to do, Peter. You got something to do, and I'm going to send you on your way, so don't be afraid. The sin part, I got that. I'm going to take care of that, but you got a job to do. We got a job to do, church, and it's called painting that children's knobs. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. 
We are to be fishers of men. And if we want to do that, if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to be the dude that could be in the party and we could be hanging out with all these crazy folks and we want to be the dude who has something profound and simple to say to somebody in need, we got to be able to flex people. We got to be able to deal with belief and doubt together. We got to be able to examine our practices of how we live this out and not to be scared of feeling scared. It's going to be scary. So Jesus says, come on, man, don't be afraid. We got work to do. So as we close, a couple of alternatives to the two two things that we got here. These two, um, the, the old container with the new wine and the new container with the new wine. How about no container? What if somebody says, I don't need the container? Maybe, maybe you might be here this morning and you say like, I don't need religion. I don't need um, any of those things. Like I just connect with God directly. I don't, I don't need Jesus and I don't, certainly don't need all the, all the Pharisee stuff. Well, I mean, the parable sort of takes care of itself there. It's, how can you uh, hold anything? How can you hold anything without a container? You can't have a life that's attractive to another person who can weave together the piece of shalom when your wine is spilled all over the ground. You do need a container, and the formation, the shape and the form, it looks like Jesus. That is the container that we were meant to have that encompasses all of our beliefs and our doubts and our feelings and our practices. It looks like Jesus. What about, what about if you say, Jamin, I'm nothing like that Peter that you just showed us in the scripture. I, I, I'm like the Pharisees. What, what am I supposed to do? This guy named Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He was taught everything the Pharisees were taught. And he came to Jesus in John chapter 3 with a container that was rigid, and he was asking it to be filled with this new wine. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I know you're special. I know you're from God. Nobody could do what you do if they weren't from God. And Jesus starts telling him all this crazy stuff about being born again. And instead of digging his heels in, instead of saying, this is scary, I've never heard this before, he says a bunch of questions. He says to Jesus, he says, how can this be? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter into a womb, this mother's womb the second time and be born again? How can these things be? You know what we got from Nicodemus letting that calcified, that hard shell holding that wine burst? You know what we got? We got John 3.16. We got America's favorite Bible verse, for God so loved the world, because Nicodemus said, you know what, this old container is not working. I got to fill it with something new. I'm going to let Jesus blow it all up and see what can take the place of that. So even if you got that stiff container, there's still hope. Nicodemus is proof of that. So, what are the questions maybe you need to ask if you're a Nicodemus? What are the questions you don't ask because you think you aren't supposed to doubt? 
Peter doubted. Jesus thought he was a pretty good candidate for discipleship. Or what are the questions you are afraid to ask because you want people to believe you are a mature and enlightened Christian? You got doubts. You got things irreconcilable in your belief system of Christianity that a bunch of people are silently all agreeing we just won't ask those questions. But you can ask them. You can ask them right here. It's okay. We can talk about it. It's cool. And lastly, one more thing to consider. What are the questions you have tried to convince yourself that you don't have? You tried to push them down somewhere, but what happens is it just makes your container inflexible. It just makes you unable to respond to the wine, to that new, active, fermenting wine in the skin. Ask them. So, two things. If you can resonate with Peter, in your belief in Jesus, and your doubt of his ways. If you're like Peter, you can act. You can make an action based on trusting Jesus, even if you can't trust the Beatitudes and everything that he says. You can act on it because you trust him, even though you don't trust what he commands. So you can act and let your container form, conform to the teachings of the kingdom. If you're a Nicodemus, let that container burst so it can be reformed. You got to trust God to be able to do that. Otherwise, you're, man, you're trying to manage God. And you just won't be able to hold the good things he has to give you. He has more to give you than that old container could ever even imagine. I say that from somebody who had his container busted. And boy, am I glad. <laughs> <laughs>